Hello and welcome to Connecting Through Heritage, a podcast from the Leitrim County Council Heritage Project. Across the five episodes in this series, we're exploring the natural, built and cultural history of the county, and we're speaking to the Leitrim people who've made it their mission to celebrate it. In this episode, we're looking at the heritage of farming in Leitrim. Farming is essential to life in the county, and at the last count in 2010, there were more than 3,600 farms in the county, meaning one farm for around every 10 people. The county's varied land has lent itself to a variety of agricultural production over the years, like cattle rearing, oats and flax growing. But historically, there's no crop more important than the potato. For Leitrim people, the sowing and harvesting of the potato crop is part of the county's cultural fabric. Well, John Reynolds is my name. I'd be known locally as John Gerald Reynolds. It's a process that John Reynolds is familiar with from his childhood. As a practitioner of traditional farming methods, John is a wealth of knowledge about the work that brought neighbours together during the potato harvest. I asked John where his interest in traditional farming methods came from. Yeah, I suppose I grew up uh, amongst my own people here and um, sat up one night listening to visitor or Kelly's as they were called coming in and talking about different things, fairs and markets and turkeys and pigs and all of that sort of thing. And uh, particularly in the springtime of the year, all the talk would be about preparing the ground for potatoes and oats and barley and everything else. And I found it fascinating, uh, the whole conversation and going on from that, the whole process of the horses being tackled up for ploughing and and the picking of the ground and where the plough and who'd be there and all of that sort of thing and bringing out tea to the field when they were ploughing. And I suppose it stuck in my memory probably better than stuff that I should kept in my memory. And I've always thought about the next generation, if there was some way of passing on, as it were, the, the, the folk history or the, the, the way things were done, then I'd be anxious to do that. So are the farming methods you're interested in something that you remember from your own childhood? Or do they go back beyond this and into the lifetime of previous generations? Well, the, the, the farming methods that I remember goes back a long, long way. I was lucky that my grandfather, I'm 72 now, so my grandfather was alive for eight years of my young um, years. I was born in 1948 and grandfather was around for another. He died in 1954. So I was glad to have that and I'd go out with him through the fields and talking and walking and that. And he was an interesting man, but he was also a great man to use hand tools for what had to be done. He used a loy, which is almost like a handheld plough, to dig the sods or dig the fields. He used a side to cut the corn. and uh, he used all the all that was at his hand, as it were, without machinery. Then I came up to the period of the tractor and, of course, used that myself. And I never actually ploughed, but I was in the fields when they were ploughing for, for corn and for, for potatoes particularly. So you're going to take us through one particular aspect of farming now. What are you going to tell us about? I had an interest in sowing potatoes or setting potatoes. Potato crop was one of the most important crops on the farm, going way, 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 way back. But even in my time, it was a most important crop because most farms at that time had hens, ducks, 
turkeys, pigs and cows. And all of those animals and birds would be fed from what potatoes you are fit to grow. What time of year was best for sowing potatoes? Certainly they would be getting out into the fields by the early March. They would decide to, to start to plough their fields, have them ready for, oftentimes, well, of course Easter varies in time, but they would like to have them ready by the end of March, a very early April. I suppose the yardstick for when you could do it or should have them finished was the cuckoo. They didn't like uh, being caught out and not having their crops ready or their potatoes or roast and barley, whatever they were sown, before the cuckoo came, which would be about the middle or late April. By the middle of April, or certainly by late April, before the cuckoo came, they needed to have their potatoes in the ground by then. What did people have to do to have the ground ready before sowing the crop? Yeah, well, the ground ready was a process in itself, in that in the harvest time of the year, maybe November or December, they would, out, would put out farmyard manure onto the bit of ground they were proposing to plough for potatoes, we'd say. That would be ready, already scattered out on the ground and well rotted into the ground, which is important. And then in the early days of March or the middle of March, they were starting to plough the ground. Now, that would be, as I say, in my father's time, that would be with horses. In my grandfather's time, it would be with a handheld plough, if you like, called a loy, which was laboursome, but if you were good at it, you could do it. They would start in then to set their potatoes in the middle of uh, April. That in itself was a slow process. They would have their seed potatoes selected. Sometimes they would cut the potatoes in uh, two or three pieces. They were called splits. And the reason for that was if there was an eye on a whole potato or two or three, they would try and cut them in such a way that when they went into the ground, that's where the stalks would come from. That's where they would produce more potatoes from. So it was, a, it was a slow process that would be done at night in the house. Usually the women that have an apron or a bag on the floor and they'd start out of the fresh bag and cut them up. Then they had to start and go out uh, to the field with their, with their apron on them. It was called a proskine. Uh, you would hold the potatoes in almost like a bag apron, an apron made out of sackcloth, and walk along the ridge of potatoes that was already prepared with a tool called a steaving. That was a wooden implement that made a hole in the ground where you were going to set the potatoes, drop it in, close back the hole and move on slowly and carefully and put about two or maybe three across in a ridge, two mostly. Close it back and then in about three weeks time cover it up with earth you dug up with another plough called scored in the furrows. Uh, you dig up the subsoil and put it on top again so as that when the stalks grew up, they would grow up strong and there'd be lots of earth to cover them. Just to go back to the ploughing, what was required to plough a field well? Well, in, in, as I say, in my grandfather's time, it would be ploughed with a long loy, which is a handheld plough, if you like. In my time, uh, it would be ploughed with, with, with two horses. Uh, Leitrim land is quite shallow. So you'd be talking about mm, six or eight inches of soil and then you're onto the gravel. So it would be hard ground to plough and you certainly wouldn't attempt it to plough with one horse. So what you did then was you went to, they call it swapping or co-working. Uh, our neighbour here, Packy Kelleher, would have had a big white mare 
we had an Irish draft uh, chestnut horse. They would come together, my father and Packy, and we would plough what we needed to plough, and then my father would go back to him. It was skilled work. You needed to have the ridges very straight. You needed to know what you were at and take your time at it because you could break a plough, break the sock of the plough, you could damage the horses or whatever. So it was a careful operation, but they were good at it and they took plenty of time to it. That was one thing about those times. They never rushed anything. It seemed to be done with care and with a bit of pride as well. What were the different parts of the plough used in the work? Yeah, well, the plough in itself was a heavy, very, very heavy, solid steel to uh, implement. Now, the, the ploughs here, and indeed most of Ireland, the plough was made by a company called Pierces of Wexford, a Pierce plough. There was other ploughs as well, but the Pierce plough was the one most commonly used all over Ireland. The plough consisted of a steel frame with two handles at the back where the ploughman stood directing it and, and steering it. Uh, the frame of the plough was steel. Underneath that frame, there was a thing called a sock. That was the, the pointy part of the plough that went into the ground. Behind that, there was the, the mould board. That, as the sock went along, uh, the sod rolled back when that was pushed against the earth. It rolled back a sod almost like a carpet. There was a knife attached to the plough called a coulter that cut the ground as they were going along and that left the ground more easily turned over with the, with the sock and the mouldboard. And then this is where we would come in as children. Sometimes if the ground was very heavy, you had to walk after the plough and make sure that the sod didn't roll back where it was dug up from in the first place. Because if it did, then it all would have to be lifted by hand. It was a difficult job. So children, uh, when they were maybe eight or nine, would be, have to come out to the field and follow the plough The two horses were up the front of the plough uh, with chains and they were each attached to the plough with a piece of timber with two hooks on the end of it called a swingle tree. Each horse was hooked to it in such a way that both of them would be pulling even. There was a, a hook on the side of it then for holding the reins of the horse. It was called the check rein and that was to keep the horses straight. That was about it. It was a simple tool but a very useful one. How did you make sure you were ploughing a straight line in the field? Well, in the first instance where they would be starting out, they would start out with a a line at the length of what they call the ridge or where they intended to plough. They would go with the look of their eye. Generally what they did was they started the first one with a line of lime, regular white lime that they'd mix with water, take out their cords or, or string, and they would mark the length of the ridge with white lime and then as they started they would put the sack of the plough on the on the white line and move off very slowly and once they had one ridge line straight that would mean that the it was obviously easy to do the next one because you just keep in line with that but yeah they were most precise and exact can you take us through a day of ploughing in the field what did it involve there was kind of an excitement about it in that this was the day we were going to do it. And my neighbour here, Packy Kelleher, as they would come to me, come to us, to my father, with his horse all tacked up uh, with the collar and chains and all on him, ready to start. And uh, Packy would arrive at his horse and they'd be hooked into the plough side by side and chained up and 
be, there wouldn't be too much talk to start with. One man would be up at the head leading on the horses and the other man was behind on the plough, keeping it straight and keeping it level. They'd plough on then till dinner time, which was always then, of course, one o'clock or thereabouts, and they'd come in then and there'd be a great hunger on them because they used to say, well, he was as hungry as a ploughman. Whatever gases or whatever smells or goodness came up out of the earth, it would give you a notorious appetite. So my mother, Lord Emerson, would probably have a good feed of bacon and cabbage and lots of spuds. Sit down and chat and smoke and relax for a while and back out to the ploughing again. What was the experience of the harvesting? The harvesting started around the end of September or early October, depending on weather. But long before that, uh, the job of spraying the potatoes was the most important and vital because potato blight was the killer, going way back to the famine, of course. That's what wiped out the potato crop and the famine. So at that stage, they had developed method and means of, of, of spraying potatoes with copper, sulphate of copper uh, mixed with washing soda and uh, they would spray the potatoes uh, about a month after they were set and continue spraying right up until about a fortnight before they were ready to harvest which would be in the early days of October maybe late September depending on the weather neighbours would come to dig out uh, your crop or my crop and whatever and then we would go back to them and whatever so you might have two or three men in the fields digging potatoes. They would dig away most of the day, and when we come from school at three o'clock, our job was to pick them up off the ridges and put them into a heap in the field, cover them with straw, and then put clay over that, and that was what was known as a potato heap. It was hard work for children. You'd come home, eat your dinner fairly quickly, and everyone got a bucket then and out and go along the ridge. Now, the ridge could be 60 to 100 yards long, and you picked the bigger ones first and brought them in and put them in one heap. Then you went back later on that evening and picked the smaller ones. They were put into a separate heap. They would be likely for hens and ducks and geese. And the bigger ones would be kept for the house. But it was it was just the time of year was cold and hard and often frosty. And not the most pleasant of jobs. If anyone ever remembers anything about the harvesting of potatoes or about indeed the setting of them, the bit they don't like to talk about is the picking of potatoes uh, of, a, of an October evening. Do you think there's a difference in the quality of the potato between then and now? Ah, uh, I do, and I do, I do in a way, because the big commercial growers would bring them in, they'd be put onto a conveyor belt to be washed and treated They'd be uh, stored then in different types of containers and bagged and sent off to market. The potatoes that I remember would have an earthy smell. So, yeah, they would have a completely different smell and in most cases a completely different flavour. A more earthy flavour, if you like. Do you own any traditional tools that would have been used in those days? Oh, I most definitely do, yeah. I most definitely do. That's a kind of a hobby of mine, collecting that sort of stuff. Uh, most everything that I would need to do the potatoes I would have. I'd have the horse and cart and the donkey and cart. I'd have the ploughs. I'd have a plough for a donkey and a plough for a horse. I'd have all the implements for setting potatoes. I have a loy. I would have used them for demonstrations in a sort of a way. 
and video or whatever just to remind people of the way things were done. Yeah, I'd have just about everything. John Reynolds there. Organic wasn't a word that farmer Tommy Early knew much about when he heard it first in 1996. My name is Tommy Early. I'm living outside from Champo and uh, I'm on the shores of Loch Allen. He soon realised that organic farming was the exact type of farming he wanted to do, keeping traditional methods while introducing new habitats and approaches to conservation to keep the land healthy for future generations. Tommy has the experience of applying these ideas to his own farm, and he shares this knowledge with farmers in the area too. He believes farmers can promote biodiversity and be active in the community, all the while staying productive. Tommy described to me what you might see if you went to visit his farm at Mount Allen. The farm here is on the shores of Loch Allen, and the farm house itself is on a little drumland. There's a variety of habitats on the farm. Between the drumlin and the lake, we have an area of, of lowland raised bog. The original river is running through the property. We have a couple of stands of old woodland on the farm, and there's some new woodland that was planted up uh, in 2010. Yeah. There's a number of other features that are put onto the farm as well, a number of ponds. What I'm farming here is weanlings, which is if you have cows, they have calves, and I rear the calves until they're six to nine months old, and at that stage they're sold in the local mart, and from there then they go on to other farms for finishing or for whatever they want for. It'd be what you call a suckler herd. That's what I'm doing. I'm also growing a couple of vegetables just for the house use here. I also do a thing on the farm. It's called social farming. Social farming is. Uh, where people come out onto your farm maybe one day a week. People that would be in the care services and uh, they work along with the farmer for a number of hours or maybe for the full day. And depending on their abilities, they, they help you with the different jobs you might be doing. You basically, whatever you'd be doing on the, your normal day yourself. What's different about your farm to the farms of your neighbours? What sets you apart? I went into a thing, scheme of things for farmers called REPS in 1996 and organic was one of the options when you went into that scheme of things there was different options and so I joined into the reps and I joined into the organic at the one time. Reps was REPS and it was a Rural Environmental Protection Scheme so it was basically a scheme of things that farmers could enter into where they could evaluate the habitats on their farm and by managing them in a certain way they would get a payment towards doing that. So there was a, a big uptake of reps when it came out. You know, it provided that sort of extra money that you might like to, to do jobs on the farm and there might not have been that bit of extra money there to do those, those jobs. When you made the decision to become an organic farmer back in 1996, what did you understand about the term organic? <laughs> well, to be honest, I hadn't, I hadn't really heard it much before that at all. <laughs> it was all a bit of a... A shot in the dark, but from what I had heard about it, it sounded good. At the start of it, the first thing that happened was a lady called Mary Lynch came out. She was an organic advisor, so she came out and uh, we walked around the farm and she took a look around it and she says, uh, well, what sort of, what do you want to do with it? 
Well, I said basically that we'll say I, I knew that the farm had been here in a long time, you know, and uh, I didn't want to do much changes to it really. So, well, she says, um, what you're on about there is, is conservation. Uh, well, I says, would that tie in with the organic? Oh, she says it would greatly, yeah. So that's what tempted me to go with the organic because um, basically I suppose we were organic up to that, but we didn't have the nice title on it because it was never a farm that was managed intensively or anything like that. We had no slatted sheds on it. No, there was nothing like that. The system of farm that was here that I grew up with had been the same for a long time before that, which was basically a, s- a small number of cows and the calves being sold off at the, the local marts. So it's, it's not much different than most of the farms around. You said that when you heard about organic farming, you thought it sounded good. What did you feel was good about it? I would have left school, we'll say, without any kind of education much about, we'll say, land or wildlife or the like of that. And uh, like I was aware of what was around me, all right, but I wouldn't have known the life cycles of the different species. Due to the reps, there was a number of talks given. There was one given by a wildlife ranger, and uh, I went along to it. And he showed a lot of slides from his own farm as to what he was doing there. And I thought, well, this is this is exactly what I want to do. do you know, so that, that greatly encouraged me to, to get into it. Basically, he was showing us the different habitats on the, that he had on his farm. He had a small pond on it. He showed all the, the wildlife that was associated with that. But then he showed some nettles that were growing on his farm as well. And the life cycle of the butterfly that was associated with that. For me, it was a it was an education, and uh, it inspired me greatly to want to do other things. Did your interest in this new approach have anything to do with production, or was it purely about conservation? Well, it's conservation, but there, I think there's room for conservation on every farm. We'll say there has been a wildlife crisis declared, you know, in this country. We'll say last May, but over the last number of decades, there was a big push for production. And uh, we'd say if you already had, for instance, tin cows on your farm, if you could squeeze in a few more to get that bit more coming off it, you were seen as a, as a good farmer, maybe a better farmer. And if you had any sort of wet fields, there was a grant available for to drain those fields. And farmers went with this and uh, they done it very well. But there was nobody shouting stop about the, the loss to biodiversity. And there's room for both, you know, there's room for being a productive farm, but there's also, you can allow room for wildlife on any farm. Since you became an organic farmer, what changes have you made to your farm? As I said, that lady that came out to have a look around the farm, she identified rushes as being the chief weed on the farm. And uh, what would have been the norm to do with them up to that was they were just cut and mowed up and if you got them dry enough, you might burn them and... That's, that's all that was done with them. There wasn't any value left on them at all. But when you went into the uh, organic thing, we had what they called a cubicle house, which was basically where the, where the cows would go in and lie down. And there was little, it was a concrete floor on it, but there was little divisions of bars so that each cow lay down separately. And when we went into the organic, they recommended that you take the cubicles out and that you would deep bed the sheds with straw, what's called a loose house. So we done that and we bought straw for the first year, but uh, the straw had to come from the other side of the country and it was, I thought it was quite expensive. So I thought it was a pity having to buy straw and trying to get rid of the rushes that we had at the same time. 
So I inquired with the organic bodies, could you use the rushes for a bedding under the cattle? And uh, yeah, there was no problem at all once you knew they hadn't been using any sprays on them or anything like that. So there was no issue there at all. So I started cutting the rushes and uh, saving them the same as you would save hay. You know, get them really dry. And then when you have them really dry, get them baled up. And uh, I use those for bales of bedding under the cattle in the winter months. So that, that has worked out well. It raised a few eyebrows at the start, all right, because uh, people were curious to see, you know, what were you bailing up rushes for, you know. And some people actually thought that you were going feeding these to the cattle, you know. And they thought, oh, well, no, that's enough. This organic isn't going to last long. <laughs> but thankfully, it has worked out grand, and there's a number of neighbours now doing the same thing. What benefits did that bring to your suckler herd? Well, I suppose the, the thing about the suckler herd is that at that time, before we went into the organic, when, when you're weaning off calves, they would be weaned off and they might be castrated. And some, in some cases, they might be dehorned. All might happen at the one time, which causes a lot of stress on the animal. But under the organic standards, you had to wean them off gradually and the dehorning would have took place and the castration would have took, would take place much earlier. So it's all animal husbandry. For me, it was, uh, it was stepping up to a higher level of animal husbandry. So that was all a new move, but it, it led you to a much greater understanding of the whole life cycle of things and how to avoid problems. Like it's all about uh, keeping animals healthy. No more than people, it's all about stress. And if you can keep the stress levels down, you'll have healthier animals. Did it have an effect on other parts of your farm as well? By not, we'd say, maxing out the farm to the very last, it, it allowed other habitats to to develop on the farm. For instance, hedgerows now. It allows the hedgerows you know, a chance to develop and to flower because uh, you could have a hedgerow on a farm, but it, it might be still classed as a hedgerow in terms of rep spam and stuff like that, but it could be maybe trimmed very tightly and it's not suitable for birds nesting and you know, birds just won't go in there. And uh, whereas we'd say with the, with the scheme of things, it allowed you the, the opportunity to see the life cycle of the birds on it. So, you know, you were, once you seen that there were, you put in a new hedge and there was birds coming nesting and it, you were very tempted then to take good care of that hedge or to, to the best of your ability so that it became a very good habitat for birds. You introduced a number of habitats to the farm. What were they? I put in a couple of ponds on the farm. And I think if anybody is thinking of doing anything, I think to put in a, a pond is probably one of the best things you can do. It, it, it'll attract in an awful lot of wildlife. We'll say early on in the year now, yeah, we have, you have the frogs in the pond. Later on then, you have newts in it. And you'll have the dragonfly species using it. Also, then on the summer evenings, it's lovely to go down and watch the bats coming in when it gets dark. And uh, you'll have the odd duck will come to visit as well. You know, so there's, there's quite a, a lot of stuff happening there. And that's only what you see. There's also a lot of smaller stuff that you don't see. It's great to, to think that, well, we'll say this wasn't happening, but just because I put in that pond there, all this wildlife now has a chance to, to come and has a place to go through their life cycle. Have you seen any species thrive on the farm as a result of your work? Well, I suppose there's different species. We'd say I became, I suppose, maybe aware of what was there more so than getting them to thrive. 
let's say for instance on the, the lowland raised bog that we have we have a um, small colony of marsh fritillary it's a little butterfly it's quite rare but it's if the habitat is kept right for him he'll have him okay but if you change the habitat to doing something else with it well you could just lose that species very easily also on the lake shore we have a little orchid that came up and um, once again it was thanks to the to the wildlife people that prompted me onto it i was uh, after them about looking at an, another type of grass i didn't know anything at all about flowers <laughs> at the time i was down on the shore having a walk with this wildlife ranger and he showed me this little flower and uh, i didn't even see it i didn't even notice there but he dropped down to his knees and he was combing back the the grass from it and he said what well, we said you know what this is ashray and it looked like you know oh he says you'll have to try and save this show and i found out about it then and found out how rare it was like you know you're doing your best to, to protect it so that that little flower then it came on and it done well the following year and the year after that it done even better but the year after that then it got nailed with a flood but that's kind of how it happens naturally and um, sometimes in a great year and sometimes not as good I suppose that was the one thing about when you discover what you have, you do more to protect it. Do you think your way of farming will be taken up by more people in the area? Uh, I would expect so, yeah. As I said, when I went into the reps in uh, 1996, it was, we'd say, one of the first organic farmers in this area. But since that, now there's nearly, I have neighbours on every site that have gone into the organic. Do you know? So it's heading that way and... Uh, my vet as well, he's turned organic as well. When he came up first, it was a new scheme things. People may have been a bit cautious and everything else. But um, I think there's an awful lot more embracing it now, and we'll continue to do And that's it for this episode of Connecting Through Heritage. If you've enjoyed this podcast, have a listen to the other episodes in the series. You'll find it by searching Connecting Through Heritage on the Leitrim County Council website, and you can also find the series wherever you get your podcasts. Connecting Through Heritage is a Leitrim County Council heritage project funded by the Heritage Council. It was produced by me, Tom Rosengrave, for One Little Studio.